0: Good morning. Happy. Ooh, what are we mid? We're past mid summer, kind of. We have two more, two more months, right, of this going on in this heat. But we are so glad that you decided to make. Part of your weekend coming to the Grove. We know it takes a lot, especially with summer schedules and trying to get everybody together, but we're glad that you're here. My name is Ali Shulman. I'm one of the pastors here, and I'm glad that you picked this Sunday because we are actually wrapping up the sermon part of the sermon series we're in called Roots Today. So we've been talking all summer about what it means to be Methodist. Often that term gets thrown around and we aren't really sure what it means other than another group of Christians. We're not sure exactly what it means to be Methodist. And so for the first couple weeks of summer, we talked about Methodist beliefs, what makes us distinct in terms of what we believe. In the last few weeks, we've talked about Methodist practices. What do we do in church that is slightly different? So we talked about how we do communion differently. We have an open table. We talked last week about why we ordain women and allow women to preach in this church. And this week, we're talking about yet another Methodist practice, but it's probably a practice that you have never heard of unless you've been deep in the wells of Methodism your whole life. And that is a practice we call in Methodism the general rules. The general rules. But before I get into what the general rules are and what that means for us, I wanna do a little thought experiment, a little kind of retelling of what it was like in the beginnings of Methodism, because I think that's important for understanding this concept of the general rules. You see, they were some rules, obviously, that were written in the 1700s, but they were written in a very particular time and place. So if you'll allow me, then we'll do a little bit of an experiment and paint that picture of what it was like in the 18th century in England. See, the 18th century was full of a lot of change, politically, economically, socially. Everything was changing. We were moving from an agricultural kind of economy back into an industrial economy. And that meant a lot of change. Specifically, it meant that all the folks who lived in the countryside now had to move. They often lost their jobs in agriculture and moved into the cities, which meant that those cities became overpopulated and crowded. And so we saw this gap between the rich and the poor start to expand, things started to get way weird in terms of what people were allowed to do and not allowed to do. There was this question about morality and suddenly it didn't make so much sense when we were all packed together, jammed inside these cities, addictions like alcohol and drugs and those things became pretty common in this little tight world that they lived in. But at the same time, decadence was growing. People could eat bananas for the first time, and pineapples, and other crazy things. So we see this kind of question of what do we do about all this new stuff? And most writers at the time would say, there's actually a quote from a writer that said, stomach well alive, soul extinct, meaning decadence, the ability to take part in things that." Uh, satisfied the flesh, that was alive and well, but the soul of the nation, that was extinct. It didn't feel like it existed. People, when they faced the chaos in the world, they, they couldn't find their footing. They didn't know what to believe in. And that, in part, had to do with what religion looked like at the time. You see, religion was a state-governed thing. It was the Anglican church. There wasn't another religion. There were small pockets of Congregationalists and Baptists, but they were called dissenters because they did not belong to the normal group. And so most people were casually Anglican. It did not mean that they were baptized. It did not mean that they were saved. It just meant that that was the norm of the day. But to be Anglican during that day did not mean that you participated in what we would call a Christian life, really at all. Because the prevalent belief of the day was something called deism, which you've probably heard of because the American founders also subscribed to this, right? This idea that God is a creator who created the earth and then left us to our own devices. And that idea, well, it's not so inspiring to be a Christian if that's your idea of what God is like. And so participation in the churches was really low. There wasn't a sense of spirituality or moral grounding. And at that time, that's when a few select preachers started what is called the Evangelical Revival in England. One of them was George Whitfield, which maybe you've heard of. And he started to preach in these open-air kind of settings, calling people to conversion, saying that there's more to God than just this deistic creator vision. There's something deeper And it turned out that people were longing for this message. And so they started to flock to these preachers in numbers. One of them was John Wesley, the founder of Methodism. And all of these preachers were trying to preach the same message, that there is something spiritually deeper that is possible here. But most people in the Anglican world, most people in England, dismissed these folks as enthusiasts, is what they called them. It was kind of off-putting. They were a little emotional for their taste. They didn't quite like them very much. They just would brush them off and think that, that ooh, that is a little tacky for our taste. And that, that is when you started to hear about Methodism as kind of a club or a society. So maybe you were kind of a nominal Anglican in your world, your middle class, upper class there, and your friend starts to go to this thing called Methodist society meeting. And in it, they meet on Sundays, and it's super weird to you, but they go and they meet in a group, and then someone kind of says something about the Bible, and then that person goes and prays with each individual person, and then they sing a bunch of songs, and then all together, that whole group walks down to the nearest church and goes and takes communion and it's bizarre because it's not just going to church now it's this other thing that is apart from church and not only did they have the societies but then they started to break into these small things called classes or class meetings so your friend is now not only going to Sunday church twice but now they're going to these kind of small groups in the middle of the week and they go for hours like four or five hours at a time sometimes every night and they would go and they'd be a meeting and a leader, and the leader would kind of do the same thing. They'd preach a word, they'd pray over each other. And then maybe most strangely to you is that they would single out individuals in the society, every single person, and they'd ask them a set of questions. And they'd say, hello, Miss James, actually, have you bought or sold any slaves this week? And then they'd go around and they'd say, hello, you, did you pray about the money that you were going to spend this week? And they did that, and there's a list of questions that they would ask. And for those of us that were outside the Methodist world, this felt like really legalistic and weird. It wasn't super popular, or at least it didn't sound it, but for some reason, it started to take hold. Something was true about what the Methodists were doing. Something made sense in that time and in that society that I think still makes sense for us today. And if you would ask your friend who is part of this Methodist movement, what was it all about? What could I boil it down to? They would have said this, that being Methodist means that you are pursuing holiness in heart and in life. In other words, there was an expectation that you would be converted, that's the heart piece, that you would repent of your sin and come to Jesus and recognize your need from Jesus. But not only that, that you would then also live that out in your life. The idea being that a change of heart generates a holy life. A change of heart generates a holy life. That was what became the norm of Methodism in those early decades, as people started to gather. But as you can imagine, it became a little confusing to try to name how Methodists should act, how they should live their life. And so John Wesley had this new city that was forming these Methodist societies, Newcastle. And it was growing like wildfire, like there were hundreds and hundreds of people coming to these societies. And John Wesley at first was pretty excited about this. And then he started to visit those societies. And he noticed that while many of them reported a change of heart, they did not have a change of life. In fact, he noticed that they were accepting the grace of God, but for some reason not taking on the responsibility that that required. And John Wesley started to get a little concerned He wanted to make sure that his societies were actually a place that the Christian life was lived out, not just in name, but in practice. And so famously, he penned an open letter to all his Methodist societies, and he called it the general rules. These were a set of rules and guidelines that he felt that all Methodists, practitioners, and all those who are part of the movement should adhere to. You'll notice as we go through them that they're loosely based on love God and love your neighbor, the two greatest commandments. It's his version of articulating how those things are lived out in his world. So what we're going to do today is we're going to go through, there's only three, so we're going to go through those general rules. We're going to talk about what they mean, and then we'll kind of wrap up to what I think those mean for us today. And it's not exactly what you think. So let's start with that first one. The first one is, do no harm by avoiding evil of every kind, especially that is which most generally practiced. Wesley then wrote a whole list of what he thought was most generally practiced. And it's a lot of different things that mostly apply to his context, but some for ours. And if you broke them down, you'd see there's kind of main, three main categories of doing no harm. There's doing no harm to self which mostly included, for Wesley at least, the things that we put in our body, namely alcohol, overeating, other addictions that plague us. He was very concerned of us keeping our bodies and guarding ourselves from things that might become harmful to us. Then secondly, it was no, do no harm to others. This one's maybe a little bit more straightforward, but he included things like tax fraud and loan fraud and addressing things in business practices. He involved things about buying and selling and how to do that well. Probably most famously, he has this whole thing about gossip about talking badly about other people, that the harm that that can do. You can see the focus on guarding your brain and your mouth and your body and making sure that you are doing no harm to others. And then lastly, the last category is do no harm to God. And that's where we get this allusion to the Ten Commandments. He talks about maintaining the Sabbath and not taking the Lord's name in vain. And lastly, he says, do nothing that wouldn't be to the glory of God. And when we read that list, it's easy just to read it as a list of rules. But I think there's actually something a little bit deeper in this. Because I think it's interesting that he starts with do no harm. That that's the first rule. Before we go on to how we act in the world, we have to first address how we don't act in the world. In a lot of ways, this kind of makes sense. If we want to progress in the Christian life, if we want to become more holy, we have to start by not taking steps backwards. We have to start by staying in one place for a little bit and understanding the things that separate us from God and knowing what those things are before we can take a step forward. I actually think this principle of do no harm is especially helpful when we're trying to discern the right course of action We don't actually know like what to do next. My guiding principle is this one, because at least if I stand and do no harm, then I know that I'm not sliding backwards. I know that I'm able to stand still before I can discern what I need to do next. We start here, and admittedly, this is one of the hardest ones to maintain. And maybe the one that I mess up the most. There are countless times where I feel like I'm doing harm in the world. But I think the advice here is the guideline of starting from a place when we do actions in the world. Of checking ourselves. Of if we are doing harm to ourselves, to others, or to God. It is from that place that he moves on to the second rule, which is do good. Do good of every possible sort and as far as possible to all men. And he starts to address how you do good. First to their bodies, to feed the hungry, clothe the naked, visit and help those that are sick. Visit those who are in prison. And then he advises us to help in the souls to do good by instructing and reproving and exhorting and correcting and discipline. And then finally, he says, do good to the church community. The first place that we should do good is by taking care of one another, bearing each other's burdens, covering each other's needs. That's what the church is for. I think for Wesley, this is the second rule, because the first one is you don't step backwards. The second one is you need to step forwards. In other words, the Christian life must be actionable for him, and for us as Methodists. We live in a belief that the Christian life bears fruit, and that fruit looks like making a difference in the world. That sounds really cliche and kind of over the top, and you've heard it a million times, but I cannot stress how important that action was for Wesley. It was an expectation that you would serve in your own personal life those who are marginalized, that you would help make the world a safer place by the actions that you did in your own life. Do no harm, do good. And the third was attend the ordinance of God, the public worship of God, ministry of the word, either read or expounded, The Supper of the Lord, Family or Private Prayer, Searching the Scriptures, Fasting or Abstinence. Now, this one is the one that gets retitled the most because we don't say ordinances anymore. What that means is order. Attend the things that God commands you to do. Do the things that God commands you to do. And you'll notice he makes a list. Attend the public worship of God. That means what? Come to church. Come to church. That was an expectation. Come to church. The ministry of the word, that means listen to sermons. Check. You're doing that right now, yeah? Listen to sermons or read sermons in his day, right? Not everyone could come to church, so they had um, books that would have sermons in them. And so read those and study the Bible in that way. The third one, Supper of the Lord, the Lord's Supper. Take communion when it is available to you. Family or private prayer, praying both in the home and personally. Searching the scriptures. This is what we call devotional reading. Sometimes we read the Bible and we want to learn more about what the author meant. We want to dig into that. That is kind of a lot of what sermons are about. But then there's this other kind of reading, which is, my guess, what a lot of y'all do naturally, which is you read the Bible to encounter God. Yeah, you read the Bible to encounter God. So you pick, you're reading this Psalm and then all of a sudden you feel the spirit move in this one particular verse. That is searching the scriptures. That is approaching the Bible with this understanding that you will encounter God. And then lastly, fasting or abstinence. Fasting is obviously fasting from food, but now in modern days, we kind of take it to mean lots of different things. For a lot of Methodists in this age, and certainly in the 1800s, the fasting or abstinence was from alcohol. That's why we have grape juice, guys, on um, communion, because for a long time, Methodists, actually, fun story. Do you know why? Because Mr. Welch was a Methodist, like Walter's grape juice. That is why we have grape juice at communion. I'm not lying. So, that idea of take of separating yourself and not drinking for them was a big part of that separating ourselves from the world and fasting and abstinence. Now, the way that we sum up these rules: do no harm, do good, attend to the ordinances of God. I might call that last one practicing the faith. These are not like secrets, right? These are not things that you didn't know. But the way that we practice the faith are through these particular ways that Christians have almost always practiced the faith. By coming to a communal worship. By listening to the word of God and studying it. By praying. By taking communion. By participating in spiritual disciplines. Do no harm. Do good. Practice the faith. There is a way to read these that focuses on the disciplinary action of them. What I mean by that is there's a way to use these as a checklist. And certainly, in Methodist societies, they were kind of a checklist. And that Newcastle group, Wesley went and kicked out 140 of them because they weren't following the rules, yeah? So they were used as a discipline. I actually don't think that's super helpful when we're thinking about these rules because here's my guess. You already knew these rules. Even if you really didn't articulate it this way, even if you didn't think about it this way, if I asked you, what do you think it means to Christian, to be a Christian? What do you think it means to live a Christian life? You would name something along these lines. You say something about avoiding stuff. And then you say something about doing stuff, good stuff. And then you say something about like, how we participate as a community. I think we actually know the rules. Like, that's the tricky part about all of this. Most of us know what it means to be a Christian. And then the question is, why the heck do we not do it? If we know, then why don't we do it? Why don't we follow these? I think there's a couple answers to that. I think one is that the way that sin acts in our world has changed. We're no longer getting in drunken brawls on the street like in Wesley's day. I mean, maybe we are, but mostly we're not doing that. Most of us can be like, check, we're not murdering anyone. Great. Our sins have changed. And in many ways, they've been dressed up in a way that is easy to deceive ourselves and to believing that we aren't doing any harm in a way that says, well, I mean, I just did that, that once, but it's, it's okay. I know that's kind of bad, but it's not, like, super bad. It's not as bad as, like, real bad. Over the last couple hundred years, the way we talk about what we do has changed. And in doing so, the definition of sin has been covered up, has been dressed up in a way that we deceive what we're doing. I think the second reason that we don't do or adhere to these more faithfully is that some of us haven't experienced God's grace in our life. And I say that because a lot of us got baptized, not all of us, but a lot of us got baptized when we were younger. And then you go through your adult life, but you never have that experience of the Holy Spirit in your life. Maybe it's instantaneous, maybe it's gradual. Either can be true. But you're not really sure that God is in your life. And without that feeling, that experience, that conversion, it's really hard to adhere to these. It's really hard to muscle through it and do it on your own. In fact, I would say it's impossible. But I actually think the third reason is why we don't actually follow these rules. The third reason is that we don't actually know why we would do these things. We don't know why. You can tell us that it's something about heaven and the afterlife, but most of us aren't truly convinced about that. That seems far off and distant and and not really tangible. And so then we're left, well, what, why? Why would we avoid the things that separate us from God? Why would we actively inconvenience ourselves and do good in the world? Why would we take on the Christian life when it is unpopular and honestly kind of hard? Why would we do that? And I think the answer is in what Wesley intended these rules to be. Yes, these are a way of life, a way to order your life, but I actually believe that these were the ways in which John Wesley believed that we could encounter God the most regularly in our life. I talked about this a few weeks ago. John Wesley had a term called means of grace. It's an old Christian concept, but he gave it a name, which is this belief that there are disciplines and practices that are set apart by God as the most reliable ways in which we receive God's grace. Specifically, we talk about two called sacraments, baptism and communion, where we believe we encounter God regularly every time. But then there are others that we believe we can encounter God and actually are pretty reliable in encountering God just in our normal life. We call these the general means of grace. And my guess is that those three rules and the practices that he described, the avoiding harm, the doing good, the coming and participating in community, in Christian life, that's what he believed where you could encounter God regularly in this life. In fact, when he would advise folks who were not quite converted to the Methodist movement yet, his advice to them was to wait in the means. What that meant was that if you were unsure of who God is, if you're unsure of who God is in your life, if you don't know that you are loved by God, then the best advice I can give you is to wait by doing the things, the means of grace that I have prescribed. Try curbing the gossip. Try saying no to the alcohol. Try fasting and abstinence. Try going visiting prisons. Try coming to church. Try opening your Bible. Try praying. Wait in the means. Because it is only by being in the means that we feel reliably we can encounter God. And let me tell you why it's important to encounter God, because that's the next question. Salvation is available in this life. And that is not a distinctly Methodist belief, but one that we hold dear. We believe that we do not have to wait into the afterlife to know who Jesus is. We believe that the Holy Spirit comes inside of us and makes us more holy and more like Jesus here and now. And that that is available to us here and now. And that the life that you dreamed of, the life that you want, the life that gives meaning, that solves your anxiety, that makes you feel loved and like you belong, that is available now through Jesus. And so it behooves us to stay in the means and wait to encounter God so that we can have that life that he has promised us that abundant life that he has given to us that is available now, not just later. It is easy to look at these as a list of rules. And certainly they had that effect. But I think they say more about the guidelines that we can follow to know Jesus now, to know who we are, in Jesus now. Methodism is always a mix of heart and life, of grace and the responsibility that it takes to have that grace. And my hope for us is that we can be the people who believe that again, who know that even though rules can feel binding, that there is an invitation in them to a life that we long for. And that's why we're here, here in this place, but also here in this earth. I hope you'll join me in that invitation over the next couple weeks, over the next couple months, as we think about what it means to be a church that lives in the pursuit of holiness, of heart, and in life. Let us pray. Holy Spirit, come here. Change us. Invite us into the life that you have promised us. Let us be willing to set aside our expectations. Give us endurance for the race ahead. Let us touch back to our heritage, but also move forward into the light and life that we long for. It is in your precious name that we are sustained. Amen.